Good morning. This week with the privilege of studying Parshas Vayeshev together. I want to thank our sponsors this morning of the Parshashir, the Marilis family, in loving memory of Tovel Tzvi ben Menashe, of Ted Schiffman. And thank you to Joel and Sally Flamholtz, in memory of his beloved brother, Jack Flamholtz, Yaakov Shlomo ben Yisrael David. Our learning this morning should be Le'iloi Nishmasam. If you'd like to, sponsor, to sign up to sponsor one of the Parsha classes, please uh, email the shul office. As always, we begin with our overview of the Parsha, and then we'll delve into our specific psukim together. Parsha's Vayeshev begins with the story, the hope, the dream that so many have, maybe particularly in this room, but frankly we all have. Vayeshev Yaakov Be'eretz Megurei Aviv Be'eretz Kenan, which Rashi tells us, Bikesh Yaakov Leshev B'Shalva. Yaakov just wanted some peace and quiet. He wanted to retire. He wanted to become an empty nester. He wanted to enjoy the early bird. He wanted to enjoy the maja. He wanted to enjoy gal. A little life, sit and learn. And this is a kind of uh, inauspicious allusion to what is to come, the havoc that will be wreaked in Yaakov's life. The beginning of the parasha begins reminding us of Yaakov and his children and telling us about these dreams. Yosef That Yosef was a dreamer. He's characterized by his dreams. His dreams are not just modern psychology and Chazal tell us that dreams essentially reveal what we are thinking beneath the surface. The dreams are in our subconscious what we're concerned with, thinking about something we saw recently and so on. But in our parsha, in Parsha's Vayetze, our parsha Miketz, dreams take on a greater significance. Dreams become a vehicle through which the Almighty is actually communicating perhaps what will be or what one should do. There's an entire discussion about the role of dreams in halacha, which we're not going to talk about. On the one in the Gemara says, that the words of dreams, that knowledge you attain through a dream, has no halachic basis. So Gemara, for example, tells, let's say one has a dream, that there's a treasure hidden. I have a dream there's a treasure hidden across the world in someone else's backyard. I make my way to their house, I knock on the door, I ask permission, I go to the backyard, I take my shovel, I start digging, and I reveal a treasure, a wealth of money. So who owns the money? The person on whose property it sits? Or me? Because I had the dream without which one would never have had access to the money. So you'll say, I have a good compromise, split it. And that might be a good compromise, but what's the din? What's the halacha? Who owns the money? The truth is, it absolutely belongs to the person whose property it sits on. The fact that I became aware of it through a dream is irrelevant, it's insignificant, it's not Baba Cheshbon, it doesn't enter the equation. So there's a whole area of the notion of dreams within halacha, dreams as a means of connecting with people, with worlds, with information. Yosef is known as the dreamer, but his dreams alienate others. Torah tells us, by Yosifu Oat Snow also. Yosef's dreams alienate. And why do they alienate others? Because Yosef makes the critical mistake of sharing those dreams. Not every dream do you need to share. In fact, also, Chazal, Allah talks about when you have a dream, sometimes you have a very traumatic dream. You're shaken to your core. You have a horrific vision, a terrible sense. And you wake up. You're tempted to articulate or communicate that dream to somebody, to talk about it. And the Gemara says, the dream only becomes real, you only have to deal with it once you talk about it. 
And what I think it means to say is, as long as you dismiss it and realize that it's a figment and function of your subconscious, that it bears no connection in any prophetic way or any prescient way to what is to come, then you can dismiss it. You don't have to deal with it. But the moment you articulate it, you've now contributed it to the conversation. Now the substance of your dream becomes part of someone else's life. You know, you ever had a dream, something horrible happened to someone, then you see them and you say, Would you, I had a dream last night that something terrible happened to you. Good, then you go on with your day. And the person doesn't dream for a week because they can't sleep for a week. So you shouldn't share your dreams, you shouldn't articulate your dreams. If you are haunted by a dream, we also have a means and a mechanism during... During uh, Birchas Kohanim, when the Kohanim Duchin, there's a tefillah composed that you should pray that the dreams that are good come true, those that are bad not come true. We're blessed to have a wonderful Sephardi minion. They Duchin every single day. If you have a bad day, a bad dream, a bad night, come to the Sephardi minion of the Boker Tone Synagogue and you'll be able to dispense with your dream. To the extent, by the way, that Allah says, if you have a terrible dream and it traumatizes you, you can fast. Because if you feel that you need atonement, you need merit, you need to engage in some virtuous activity to offset whatever was indicated in the dream, you could fast. Let's say you have a terrible dream Friday night and you want to fast on Shabbos. But it's incongruous. Shabbos is a day of Tanug, of Oneg. Shabbos is a day of joy and pleasure and happiness. Simcha, our Zmiros, talk all about how much we eat and we fress and we enjoy. So are you going to fast on Shabbos? Who are you going to insult? Your wife, your mother, the hostess that you didn't eat a thing at the table? You're going to fast? So halacha says you're allowed to fast. Why? It's a fascinating halacha. You're allowed to fast. Why? Because the halacha of simcha of yontif is an objective halacha. Of simcha being defined by basar v'yayin. But the halacha of oneg on Shabbos is not simcha, which is an objective pleasure. It's oneg, which is a subjective personal pleasure. It's relative to who you are and what brings you pleasure. For example, there are even people, I don't want to speak Lashon Hara, who enjoy milchiks on Shabbos. I don't want to say Lashon Hara publicly, but there are people who enjoy milchiks in general. They enjoy it even on Shabbos. A milchik meal on Shabbos, it's not traditional, but there's nothing wrong with it. If, that, if that's oneg for a person, so that's oneg. That's the halacha of oneg. So the halacha says, if the oneg for you will be to fast, meaning, if we force you to eat and deprive you of your ability to fast, to offset your dream, you won't get pleasure from the food. The food is torturing you. It's not adding to your Shabbos, your Onig Shabbos. It's depleting you of Onig Shabbos because you're haunted by this dream. You just want to fast. So Allah says in that circumstance, you're allowed to fast. I don't even know why we t- I got into dreams. That's not even our subject. <laughs> Yosef has these dreams. I know why. Because he shouldn't share them dreams. What got Yosef into trouble, what starts the entire episode the lands are people in Mitzrayim, 210 years of servitude and oppression, is that Yosef shared his dreams. Not all your dreams are you meant to share. And it increases animosity and enmity between him and his brothers. He has another dream, and then Yosef is sent to go visit his brothers. Your brothers are serving as shepherds in Shechem. Go! By the way, interesting, given what we spoke about last week, the difference between the name Yaakov and the name Yisrael, here it doesn't say Vayomer Yaakov or Yosef, go check on your brothers. It's Vayomer Yisrael. I'm not going to do your work for you. You have to figure out 
why it says Yaakov, why it says Yisrael, given those, uh, given those differences. So Yaakov sends Yosef to go check on the brothers. Was that a wise move? You know, there are so many, so many events in our parsha in which you say, if only that went differently, this whole thing wouldn't have happened. If only that went differently, this whole thing wouldn't have happened. And this is another one of them. And in fact, the Sforno says a little bit later that when Yaakov is told by his sons, they bring back this, the, the famous ketones pasim, the multicolored coat covered in blood in order to try to trick Yaakov into, because his whole life is surrounded by deceit and trickery, but to trick him into believing that, Yaakov, that his son Yosef is killed. So Yaakov, it proclaims that he tears his garment and he grieves and it says, he's inconsolable. He refuses to be consoled. And he says, I will go with my son to the death in mourning. Meaning I'll never feel happy again the rest of my life. And there are people, Rahman al-Islam, who lose a child. Who was just telling me last night? Somebody who lost a child was sitting shiva and someone came to pay a shiva call who had lost a child and the mourner asked the other person, you know, the shiva, the shloshiv, the loss of a child, when does the mourning end? And the other person said, not until the day you die, when you lose a child. Rahman al-Islam. So Yaakov says, I will go to my own death continuing to grieve. So the Sforno says, why is Yaakov inconsolable? Yaakov's inconsolable because he takes personal responsibility. He says to himself, if only I hadn't... Had he not sent Yosef, he knows there's a rift. He knows that there's enmity between the brothers. But he sends Yosef... Go check on your brothers. And when Yosef doesn't return, he feels such regret. He feels such responsibility. He's plagued by a sense of guilt. I could have done more. I could have protected my child. This didn't have to happen. And so on. He goes, we know the whole story, that they plot to kill him. Reuven intervenes. Thrown in the pit. He's taken out of the pit. He's sold. They come to Yaakov and they tell him the story and Yaakov refused to be comforted. Then all of a sudden in the middle we have this interlude. The story of Yehuda and Tamar. We're not getting into this today in depth. But of course the question, one of the many, there are many questions. Yehuda and Tamar, you don't get a chance to ask them in school because you don't learn this in school. But there are many questions on this section of Yehuda and Tamar. One of the most compelling to me is, who is the result, the progeny? Who emerges from this union of Yehuda and Tamar? Go down the line. Melech HaMashiach. David HaMelech and ultimately Melech HaMashiach. Mashiach is the result. By the way, not just Yehuda and Tamar, and then we have after Yehuda and Tamar. Every, everything about Mashiach's background and lineage, because you go back to actually Lot and his daughters. Lot and his daughters, Yehuda and Tamar. Everything about Mashiach and his lineage comes from stories that seem so immoral. He has such a tainted, blemished background. Why? You'd think Mashiach of all would have the greatest yichus. Melech HaMashiach, the one who will come redeem us, has the worst yichus. If Mashiach had to submit his shidduch resume, be a lonely man for life. 
tell you about my great-grandparents, my great-grandmother who slept with her father. Let me tell you about another ancestor, Tamar. You have to understand, she was so desperate for a child, she dressed up as a prostitute, but it was L'Shem Shemayim. And Yehuda, he's one of the Shivtekah. Okay, but he was with her, he didn't realize it was his old daughter-in-law. Imagine that on the Shidduch resume. I hate to be the Mashiach's rabbi to take that call. <laughs> so that to me is the most compelling question, and there are a series of good answers about why Mashiach is the result, why does he have that, that yichus? But that's the story of Yehuda's sons die, they're childless, Tamar is desperate for continued continuation, continuity, she positions herself as a, a harlot, Yehuda engages her services, leaves these items with her, later she's pregnant, he says, my former daughter was pregnant, she's not married, what a shanda, she should be killed, and she says, I'm not, I'm not saying who the father is, I'm not saying... I'm just going to say, whoever owns these things, if he wants them back, I still have them. <laughs> and Chazal see in Yehuda, uh, Chazal see rather in Tamar, unbelievable, unbelievable self-restraint, self-control. She, she's magnanimous, she's generous, that she doesn't lash out. You're criticizing me in public? You're humiliating me? Are you crazy? Should I reveal to the world the Father? Instead, she alludes to it. And we learn, it's better to die than to embarrass another person in public. Tamar becomes the source of our strength and our capacity to hold in the anger, the rage, to not react in a way which will escalate, but to be able to preserve another's dignity and to not embarrass them in person. You know, my, my daughter Tamar's bat mitzvah is this weekend. Anyway, I will not be speaking about this section of the Parsha. <laughs> Yosef's brought back, and, and we're not going to study this either, but why is it, it's a very strange like interlude right in the middle of the Parsha. whole story of Yosef and the brothers and the pit and the sail and Egypt, it now picks up exactly there that he comes down to Egypt and Potiphar purchases him and he's in the home. What was Yehudin Tamar? Why is it? Right there, right in the middle, breaking up the story, what is the significance of the, of the placement of the way the narrative unfolds? Also not for our time. Yosef comes down, he succeeds to uh, bring great blessing to the home of Potiphar. Aishas Potiphar accuses, she's spending her life trying to seduce Yosef, and the Chazal are not shy to graphically describe her methodology of trying to seduce Yosef. And what I think, in a very encouraging way for us, Chazal also tell us that Yosef was a, was a man, was a regular person. Not a regular person, Khalila. Our avos were beyond reproach. They were great people, categorically different than we. But Yosef is relatable, I should say, because he's ready to give in. He's struggling with that opportunity. He's struggling with that temptation. And he has every reason in the world... Not to show restraint. What's going to happen? He's going to hurt his parents' reputation? What parents? He's going to hurt his brothers? What brothers? He's going to ruin his social standing? What social standing? He's a slave. He's been sold into slavery. He has no community. He has no family. He has no standing. He's gone through hardship. He went from the top of the world, the dreamer who's going to be a leader, 
to a slave who almost narrowly escaped death in a pit. A woman comes on to him, he has an opportunity, he's going to give in. Chazal read in the Psukim very powerfully how close he is. It says that he came that day. Where is the Pasuk? And it was, there was an opportune day, and he came to the house. Why is it an opportune day? Chazal tell us. It was uh, Sunday, and Isha's Potiphar's whole family was heading to church services. And the last minute she says, you know, I'm not feeling so well. I think I'm going to stay home. You go, everybody go, clear out the house, no one here. I'm not feeling great. She stays behind knowing Yosef's coming to work. And she dresses the part and acts the part and attempts to seduce him. And this was the end of Yosef's capacity for restraint. He came to do his work. Melachto did not mean to balance the books, to balance the checkbook, to, to calculate the taxes for Potiphar. Lasos melachto chazal say means he came to do melachto. He was ready. He was ready. The ain ish but no one's there. There was opportunity. She grabs him by the cloak and she says, "No, enough of the cat and mouse game. Enough of the charade." Somehow at that moment he finds the capacity, he runs outside. We've spoken about this in the past, I'm sure it's on the previous year's shiurim. But where does Yosef find this capacity, the strength? He sees the image of his father. Just in the moment of temptation, just in the moment of weakness, just in this critical juncture that could have led his life in such different directions, in that exact moment, all the learning, all the time, all the influence of his father kicked in. Just in that moment, he saw the image of his father. Very, very powerful. This really summarizes the essence of parenting. Is to not only have an influence on your child when you're in their presence, but how to create a relationship that they hear your voice even when you're not with them. Now, Chazal say, the role of stars, the Gemara says that Machanchan educators are like stars in the sky. How are they like stars in the sky? So all the Mepharshim give different explanations of the Gemara. Stars shine brightly, shards reflect light. The Maharsha, Shmuel Idels, gives a great shot. He says, you know why our Mechanchim, our educators, our leaders, our influencers are likened to stars? Says the Maharsha, because even during the day, when you can't see the star, you know it's there. Star is not always visible. It's not always reflecting light. But you know it's there even when it's light out. And the job of a successful educator, the job of a parent, the job of a grandparent is to be such a presence and force in their children and grandchildren's life that their voice is heard, their image is seen even when they're not there and especially in those moments in their children and grandchildren's life that are so critical and that are can lead into so many different directions. A lot more to say about this. We've spoken about it in the past. 
All these things happen. She holds on to his cloak, his garment. Garments have a big... In Tanakh, garments, the symbol of garments are very powerful. You have it with David and Shaul. You have it here with Yosef and Eshiz Potiphar. We have it actually with Shmuel Hanavi as well. We have a number of situations where there's a garment. It's grabbed onto, it's held back, it's torn, it's ripped. There's a whole lot to say about the significance of the symbolism of garments. Yosef is thrown into prison. And our parsha ends when in prison, two of his prison mates, who were not pardoned, two of his prison mates, the cupbearer and the baker, Saramashkim and the Saraofim, have dreams. They do share their dreams because they're traumatized by them and they're seeking interpretation of them. And Yosef interprets them. And the parsha ends. Anyone know? Last week we spoke about what day on the Jewish calendar the wrestling match of Yaakov and the angel was. Kol Nidre. Good. Does anyone know what day on the Jewish calendar was it when Yosef languishing in prison, sitting in sackcloth, hair down to his shoulders, long beard because he hasn't shaved, dirty, smelly, miserable, lonely, rejected, dejected, despondent, falsely accused, abandoned, attempted to be killed. What day was it on the Jewish calendar when he turned to the Saramashkim and Saraofim? It was Rosh Hashanah. It was Rosh Hashanah. Chazal say, it was Rosh Hashanah. And he turns to the Saramashkim and the Saraofim. Yosef's liberation from prison, Yosef's salvation in next week's parsha comes only because he bothers to ask the Saramashkim and the Saraofim, why the long faces? Hey brothers, what's the matter? Why you look so sad? What's going on? Had Yosef never initiated concern, care about another. Had Yosef understandably and rightfully retreated into his own misery and not engaged those around him, he'd still be in prison. It's only because he interrupts his story to say to two people he sees who are sad, hey, what's the matter? Why the long faces? Why are you so sad? That becomes the catalyst that begins the process. Because they say we have these dreams, he interprets the dreams... And then next week, when Paro has his dreams, that's how Yosef is able to get out of prison. And when does it happen, Rosh Hashanah? Part of the message of Rosh Hashanah is to bring our own redemption, we have to care not about ourselves. To bring even our own personal redemption begins with caring about those around us. You're sad, you have a sad story, you have problems in your life. The answer is not that the rest of the world should serve you and your problems. Your personal redemption is to see someone else who looks sad and say, What's going on? Why the long face? What can I do? How can I help? Okay, that's an overview of the parsha. Let's go back to the very beginning. Beginning of the parsha this week. Actually, before we get to the beginning, we're still within the overview. Only because this is, connects the parsha and Yana Dioma, in case you didn't get the memo, Saturday night, Sunday, the first night, first day of Hanukkah. The Gemara and Shabbos second parak of Shabbos, Bamim Adlikin, is where the Gemara has the discussions about Hanukkah. There is no Meseches Hanukkah. We've discussed on another occasion why that is. We have Meseches Megillah, we have Pesachim, we have Sukkah, we have Yuma. Why is there no Meseches Hanukkah? Why is there a few dapim that get put right in there towards the beginning of Meseches Shabbos? We talked about that on another occasion. But here in Meseches Shabbos, 
On Daf Chaf Aleph, Gemara says the following: Amar Rav Kahana Darosh Reb Nosim Bar Minyomim Mishmei Derabi Tanchum Ner Shalchana Kasheiniach Lemala Meesrim Ama Psula Kisuka Uhmaboy. If the menorah is above twenty ama, thirty feet off the ground, ineligible, no good. Psula. It is an invalid menorah. One does not fulfill the mitzvah if the menorah, the Chanukiah, sits 20 amma, about 30 feet, off the ground. It doesn't mean if you're on the fifth floor of the apartment building, it can't sit in your window. That's within 20 amma of your level. It means that relative to where you're standing, it can't be 20 amma off the ground. Like a sukkah. The halacha of a sukkah is the schach, has to be within 20 amma of the floor of the sukkah. Sukkah can't be higher than 20 amma. And like a mavoi, a mavoi, the law is a particular um, rishus. How do you translate rishus? Th- uh, domain. A particular domain in Jewish law, in terms of the law of carrying, it requires that the entrance to the domain. A mavoi can be open on one side or it can be open on both sides that you pass through. There's different types of mavoi and foolish. There's different types of mavoi. But you need a korah, you need a beam at the entrance of the mavoi, which serves as what we would call today an eruv, to be able to carry within it. That beam can't be higher than 20 amma. So the Gemara is likening the menorah, the Chanukiah, can't be more than 20 amma off the ground, just like the law of a sukkah and a mavoi. Zog the Gemara Vaiter says the Gemara next. Amar of Kahana Dorosh of Nosen Bar Minyom and Mishmeid Rav Tanchum. My Dixiv Aborik Ein Bo Mayim. What does the pasuk mean when it says that Yosef is cast into the pit, and the pit is described as the Aborik? The pit was empty. Ein Bo Mayim. Mimashenamar Aborik Ein Yodesh Ein Bo Mayim. It says the pit's empty. So why do you have to continue? The pit is empty, there's no water, there's no garbage, there were no basketballs, there weren't any old sneakers, there was not... Well, you just said the pit was empty. If it's empty, it's empty. Why do you have to say it was empty? It had no water. Says the Gemara, Matamad Lomar, what the Pasuk means to tell us is, Ein bo mayim. Mayim ein bo. Avon nechashem ve'akravim yeshbo. The pit was empty means it was empty from water. But what was in the pit? Snakes and scorpions. And a miracle happened that Yosef is thrown into a pit with snakes and scorpions. And yet, when they go retrieve him because they determine that they're better off selling him, he's still alive. Ask all the commentators, what does one Gemara have to do with the other? What does the law of the menorah have to do? In other words, why does the Gemara bring this drusha here of all places? Why are you bringing that Gemara here? What does that have to do with Hanukkah? What does that have to do with the menorah? And the height? What is it doing here? So a number of different answers are given. Torah Tzimima gives two answers. One is, simply it's the same Baal Memra. It's the same person who taught both halachas. Rab Nosem Bar Rebbe. He taught one law and the Gemara often does that. When it quotes someone, it then shares a number of his teachings in succession. Once you're on a roll, so-and-so used to say, and let me tell you what else he used to say. So the first answer to the Torah Tamima is, there is no intrinsic connection. That's nothing to do with one another. 
happens to have been introduced by the same person, and that's why it is put together. But the Torah Tamima gives another answer, and he says the following. How is it that the brothers threw Yosef in the pit, and they weren't worried about snakes and scorpions? If they had just determined, you know what, let's not kill him. We're better off not killing him. Let's throw him in a pit. And then you're going to throw him in a pit and it has snakes and scorpions and he's going to die? So then it was an act of murder. How did you help yourself? So the answer is what? They didn't see the snakes and scorpions. They thought it was an empty pit. How could you not see? Look in the pit. How could you not see the snakes and scorpions? What's the big deal? Just look in the pit. Elamai, it must be that how deep was the pit? More than 20 ama. Because the Gemara talks about when it comes to the laws of Sukkah, and when it comes to the Mavoy, and when it comes to the Hanukkah. Why can't they be taller than 20 off the ground? Because a person's eye, the beginning of Erevin, the Gemara says, a person's eye is not drawn to that height. The whole idea of the Sukkah is, You have to know why you're in the Sukkah. If you can't see the Schach, it doesn't matter, you don't say, well, I'm sitting in a sukkah built correctly, I can't see it, but it doesn't matter. It matters. It's not just about meeting the letter of the law. When it comes to the holiday of sukkahs, and sukkahs is an exception here, the tour says, even though generally one does not have to know the reason for the mitzvah to fulfill the mitzvah, generally, even without understanding the reason for the mitzvah, as long as you pragmatically fulfill the mitzvah, you have accomplished the mitzvah. But sukkah is an exception, says the tour. Because the Pasuk says, you have to know why you're in the sukkah. Therefore the schach has to be within 20 ama, a height where I can be drawn to it and you'll see it. The same is true with the mavoi. The whole idea of the beam is so that you remember it's a separate domain, it's a separate thoroughfare. And that you're not carried between inside the mavoi and outside of it. Well, if your eye is not drawn above 20 ama, you won't be reminded. And the purpose of the menorah is Pirsume Nisa. So you can't say, I lit the menorah, I, nobody could see it, who cares? Technically, I lit it. The whole idea of lighting it is to Pirsume Nisa. If it's lit at a height that no one will, their eyes won't be drawn, then you haven't fulfilled. Says the Torah Tamima, that's the connection between the two sections of the Gemara. Why, punked in the middle of Hilchas Hanukkah, do we have the drasha that the pit was empty of water, but it had snakes. Says the Torah Tamima, the connection the Gemara is telling us is, if in fact it had snakes, how could the brothers have thrown Yosef in? They just decided not to kill him. If throwing in the pit was the alternative to killing him, how could they throw him in a pit that has snakes? And what's the answer? The pit was deeper than 20 ama. So they couldn't see, your eye is not drawn deeper than 20 ama, they couldn't see the snakes and scorpions. The Ksav Sofer, Ksav Sofer, the son of Ksav Sofer, gives a different answer. The Ksav Sofer says that Ruvain didn't rely on the miracle that Yosef would live. And that's why Ruvain insisted they go back and save him. And the Chashmonaim as well. They didn't rely on a miracle passively that everything would be okay, but rather they showed initiative and they brought about their own miracle. 
The same way Reuven came back to check on Yosef and they took Yosef out of the pit and they didn't rely on a miracle, but they became the miracle. The Chashmonaim similarly didn't rely on a miracle passively, but actively they became the medium for the miracle. And he says the Ksav Sofer, that's the connection between the two Psukim. There are other answers uh, which are given to this question. But there's another question. Let's assume not like the Torah Tamima. The brothers knew there were snakes and scorpions in the pit. Why would they throw them in the pit with snakes and scorpions? How could they do, how could they do such a thing? So again, one answer is they couldn't see it. The pit was too deep, they couldn't see it. The Orachayim HaKadosh, here in our parsha, the Orachayim HaKadosh says, they felt that Yosef was liable for death having violated a capital crime. What capital crime did Yosef violate? Yosef came to his father Yaakov and he says about the brothers, I've seen them. They're eating Aver Menachai. They weren't really eating Menachai. When you shecht an animal, it does a pircus. It, it, it does a... Spasm. It spasms. It continues to move. Even though technically it's dead, the muscles are spasming as if it's still alive. So they had done the proper shechita, then they were eating the animal. But Yosef only observed it as the animal was spasming, still moving. And Yosef falsely, or inaccurately I should say, reports to his father, my brothers are eating Avram and Achai. And he accused them of being, violating the laws of Arias. And among the seven mitzvahs b'nei Noach, Avram and Achai and Arias, and we talked about last week, in the context of the collective punishment of Shechem, that... The Bnei Noach, non-Jews, are liable for death for the violation of these Noachide laws. So Yosef was reporting to their father about their activities, something which would have made them liable for the death penalty. But he was a false witness. He was wrong. He was inaccurate. What's the halacha of an aid zomim? What's the halacha of a false witness? What's their punishment? The punishment is they receive whatever result they were trying to accomplish for the person they were testifying about. So says the Arachayim HaKadosh, the brothers, the brothers decided, well, you know, he's falsely reporting about us in a way that could get us killed. That means he's an Eidzomim. It justifies our throwing him into a pit with snake and scorpions because as an aid zomeim, he is liable, he is liable for death. The Kliyakar is yet another answer. Kliyakar says, the brothers thought to themselves, a pit with snakes? It's the perfect place for Yosef. Why? Later in the Torah, we find that the Jewish people are accused of Lashon Hara, by Daber Ambe Elohim of Moshe, in Bamid Bar Jewish people violate Lashon Hara and what happens? What's the result? They suffer a plague. And what's the plague later in Bamidbar? When they gossip, God sends, what's the plague? Snakes. And if you remember, this is the, they're told to make a metal, metal symbol and it becomes the means through which they are healed. And it becomes the symbol until this very day, a physician's symbol. Right? Is the snake on the staff? And that comes from Sefer Bamidbar. 
So says the Kliyakar, the punishment for Lashon Hara is snake. Where does Yosef, the one who speaks Lashon Hara about us, Yosef, the dreamer, the gossiper, where does he belong? What should be his punishment? And they therefore cast him into the pit because they feel that's where he belongs. Okay, let's get back to the beginning of the parsha. We already said, Vayishav Yaakov Beret Megurei Aviv Beret Kenan. Yaakov comes to the home of his ancestors, to the place of Kenan. And then Eilat told us, Yaakov, Yosef, and Shvas Reishana. These are the story of Yaakov. Of Yaakov. Yosef is 17 years old. Hayaro'eh echav be'atzon. V'hu na'ar. As b'nei bilav, as b'nei zilpa, neshe aviv. Vayavei Yosef is dibasom ra'al avihem. Yosef is described as a na'ar. Rashi tells us what makes him a na'ar. We're, we're, we're consumed by na'ars all around us. The whole notion of a selfie, trying to talk to a teenager, you're talking to them and they're making a face and they're holding the thing and they're taking the selfie. That's a na'ar. Maisa na'aris. Misakin besa'aro. Memashmesh be'enav k'deshi anira yafa. Obsessed with looking in the mirror. Obsessed with their appearance. Obsessed with the external. That's what it means to be a na'ar. And what Sforno has a little bit different. Look at the Sforno. For Rashi, what makes Yosef a na'ar at 17 years old? He's a bar mitzvah. But what makes him a na'ar? He's obsessed with his appearance. He's looking in the mirror. He's worried what others think. For the Sforno, what makes Yosef a na'ar? That he's not roa esanolad. He doesn't see the consequences of his actions. Both of these are excellent Examples of immaturity. Svarno says Yosef's being a na'ar was, he's a tattletale. He's running to tell on his siblings to his father, and he doesn't see the consequences. Achor is dover. mode. He was certainly very smart. He's Yosef at Sadik. He's Yosef. He's brilliant. He's a progeny. He's a prodigy. But still, he had book smart, but he didn't use street smarts. You have to know the consequences of your action. If you go report on your brothers, it's going to come back to bite you. And Ya and Yisrael, again, not Yaakov, who loved Yosef, not Yaakov. Yisrael aspect of Yaakov loved Yosef. And the Rashbam writes, Yisrael Ahav, Kol Ze Garam Hakina. Rishonim were not shy when necessary. They viewed necessary to criticize the Avos. Yaakov loved Yosef. And says the Rashbam, that started everything. Favoritism. Choosing one child over the others. That got all of it started. That's what kicked everything off. The Asolok Sonas Pasim. And what was the expression of Yaakov's favoritism for Yosef? He gives him this beautiful multicolored coat. Says Rabbi Salavechik, pasim, Yosef held two visions. He dreamt of his alumos, the sheaves, which rose and stood on high while the sheaves of his brothers came and bowed down to his. When he told that dream to his brothers, their hatred was deepened and strengthened, but their envy was not aroused. When he dreamt another dream, of the sun and the moon and the stars bowing to him, 
When he told that dream to his father, then his brothers envied him. Not only did they hate him, but then they became envious of him. In other words, there's two separate emotions that are going on here. There's hatred, we're going to talk more about in a moment. The brothers are consumed with a hatred for Yosef. Goody two-shoes, dad's favorite, he's got everything going, he throws it in our face, shares his dreams, they hate him. But it began with hatred, then this other attribute is introduced, namely, envy. Why did the envy come from? Writes the Rav, prima facie interpretation is that Yosef had two visions. One was of material and economic power, of prosperity and opulence. The other revolved around spiritual greatness, heavenly sweep and heavenly grandeur. Yosef wanted to be powerful in a political sense, to attain wealth and prosperity, to be respected by people because of his power, feared by people because of his might. But he also wanted to be great spiritually, to be loved and revered because of his wisdom and kindness. Can one person combine both qualities? Can one person fulfill both dreams? Asks the Rav. The dream of the sheaves, of economic and military power, and the dream of spiritual greatness, of moral heights and communion with God. Yosef, as an executive, paid attention to the hard facts of life. He organized the storage of food during the seven years of prosperity. He divided and then removed the peasants from their land. Could he at the same time be a dreamer, a visionary, and the spiritual leader loved by people? Often there are people, they're, they're good in the nitty-gritty, in the details, in the organization, but they can't go to 30,000 feet and dream. And the people who are dreamers, when it comes to executing, their heads in the clouds, they're dreamers. Could one person combine both? These are the two dreams of Yosef. The stars, the moon, the sun, he's in the clouds, vision, the sheaves, the execution, the practical. Apparently, writes the Rav, Yosef thought that he could combine both. And this is the meaning of the Ksonas Pasim. The coat that was multicolored, not monochromatic. The many colors clashing with one another signify inherent contradictions. Yosef was the synthesis of the earthly sheaves and the heavenly bodies. The multicolored coat which Yosef wore symbolized his multifaceted personality. There were many colors to his shirt. A lot of base medrashers he probably couldn't get into, but there were many colors to his shirt. His greatness manifested itself in contradiction. On one hand, Yosef was a very practical man. He managed the Egyptian economy and ran the empire. He saved the Egyptian people from famine. He was the statesman par excellence. He knew how to deal with people, understanding human weakness and human nature. At the same time, he was a dreamer. He was fascinated by a world purged, cleansed from evil. A humanity which reached the apex of moral ascent. He dreamt not only of farming, but of stars winking to him from boundless distances. The greatness of Yosef expressed itself in that strange merger of two mutually exclusive powers, one of logical analysis and precision, of discriminating between facts and fancy, the power to be in, contract, in contact with reality, no matter how uncomfortable, and another one of dreaming, questing, and reaching out for something beyond reality. I love the imagery of the Rav, that the multicolored coat represents the multiple aspects and components of Yosef. We have people who are very simple. Their lives are black and white. They live in black and white. Right and wrong, simple, everything is very clear. And we have others, there's a multiple color. 
Remember Rav Hirsch's interpretation of the rainbow. I don't remember if we talked about it in the Parsha Shir this year or where we talked about it. But Rav Hirsch writes about the rainbow that one of the disappointments of the Ribbonu Shalom in his creation, and this is the Nitzv's famous interpretation of the Migdal Bavel, was that they tried to create uniformity. Migdal Bavel was that people began to to, to long for independence. They wanted to set up their own communities. And Migdal Bavel insisted on uniformity. They wanted to make a tower, says the Nitziv. They tried to create a capital of the world. And all the power would emanate from that capital, from that one tower. And the world would speak one language and have one culture. Remember we talked about Rabbi Danny Gordis's article about, about uh, particularism versus universalism. And this is, uh, he doesn't write it, but it's my suggestion, what's happening in the world today, the whole phenomenon with Brexit, the whole phenomenon, the election in the United States, the whole phenomenon with recent other elections in Europe, has to do with the last 10 years was a move towards universalism to suppress particularism. And now there's a rebellion that we don't want to be part of the EU and have the same currency and the same language, the same rules and the same... We want our particular nationality, our particular culture, our particular individuality. And Migdal Bavel was the earliest version that sought to create an EU to suppress individuality and particularism and to force people into a universalism, to conform, to be exactly the same, to speak one language, to report to one tower that reached the sky. And Tziv says that's why when God disperses them and gives them separate languages, it's not a punishment, it's a correction. The failure was universalism. God says the response is particularism. Languages, countries, cultures, nations, peoples. And says refers the same is true with the rainbow. What is a rainbow if not one ray of pure light that goes through a prism and emerges the colors of the rainbow? It all comes from one source. It all traces back to Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, but it expresses itself in the particularism, in the many particulars of the, of the various diverse colors of the rainbow. And that refers is what the Rav is saying about the Ksonas Pasim. Yaakov doesn't give Yosef a frak, a rekel. He doesn't give him a bekesha. Here's a black coat. Wear it with your white shirt. I'm not being critical. I'm a person who happens to wear a white shirt every day. I'm not being critical of people who dress a certain way. In fact, I just read about the CEO of maybe Facebook. I forgot which huge company. Who describes that in his closet he has all the same shirt and all the same pants. One color of each. Because there's so many things to think about during the day. He doesn't want to waste his brain power, one of them to be, what he's going to wear in the morning, and he doesn't want to have to fit into whatever style. And I thought, this guy is yeshivish. <laughs> it's another way of describing, he's yeshivish. For the same reason. So I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean to speak disparagingly of that. My point is that Yaakov doesn't give Yosef a black coat to wear, or a white coat to wear. What kind of coat does he give him? A multicolored coat. He sees within Yosef diversity. He sees within Yosef not monochrome. Yosef doesn't live life in black and white. Yosef lives life in color. Which speaks to a much bigger debate between Yosef and Yehuda, Yosef and the brothers. 
understand that their debate, their, their fight was not superficial. This was not sibling rivalry. This was a debate about ideology. Ravaran Soloveitchik has a beautiful essay about it. And in fact, in a couple weeks' time, if you remember Bokraton Synagogue, or you're here on that Shabbos in January, I think the first Shabbos, you're going to be getting a postcard in the mail this week calling for you to attend jury duty. In fact, don't go to West Palm Beach Courthouse. It looks literally like a jury duty. It's designed phenomenally by our own Kerry. It looks literally like a jury duty summons. But you're all going to be summoned to jury duty the first Shabbos of Bracious, where we're going to have lawyers argue for both sides, Yosef and the brothers. And we're going to have a mock trial of the brothers being put on trial for what they did for Yosef. We'll see if a good defense attorney can get them off the hook. And we'll have a judge who will hear the mock trial. And the whole congregation is the jury. You're getting the jury summons in the mail. And, and what, the, what our lawyers will argue that Shabbos morning, the, the points of their argument are not going to be, well, he was mean, he started it, he was first, he called me a name. That's not the battle between Yosef and his brothers. It's an ideological battle. It's a battle about how you see the world. Part of it is, do you see the world in black and white or do you see the world like Yosef's coat in color? Speak more about it that Shabbos. Let's go a little bit further. The brothers see their father loves them more than anyone. They hate him. They hate him and they cannot translate these words for me now. It's not just It's not just that they hated him. Hate's a very strong emotion. Hate is a very destructive force. You know, the Rav points out, the Ramban refers to the book of Bracious as Sefer Asimanim. It's the book of signs. It foretells the future of the Jewish people. And it doesn't just tell of a time of blessing and success and prosperity and good fortune. But it also foretells the time of animosity and enmity and judgment and hatred and baseless hatred and strife and conflict that has always punctuated our history. It was practiced at the beginning of the Jewish people, Yosef and his brothers, and it continues to rear its ugly head even yet today. Even yet today. But it's not just that they hated him. Vayisnu also, they hated him, that's easy to translate. What about the rest of the Pasuk? Velo yachlu dabru shalom. It's a clumsy expression. Velo yachlu dabro Shalom. So some translate it as, they couldn't speak a kind word to him. Others translate, they could not speak peacefully to him. And yet others translate, they could not speak to him on friendly terms. But look at the Ibn Ezra. Two words the Ibn Ezra writes. Lo yochlu dabro l'shalom, writes the Ibn Ezra, afilu l'shalom. It's not just that they couldn't talk about the issues they disagreed about. It's not just that when politics came up, when Jewish politics came up, when sports came up, they couldn't be peaceful. But lo'afilu l'shalom. Not just they didn't want to be close or loving. It means not just they couldn't debate respectfully, but afilu l'shalom. They couldn't even give them each other a shalom aleichem. The hatred and intolerance had grown so deep they couldn't even greet one another. Afilu l'shalom. They couldn't even give a shalom aleichem. 
What a disgraceful state of affairs. Yosef and his brothers passed each other in their hallway of their home on the way to the bathroom in the morning and they couldn't say good morning. They couldn't say how are you. They didn't give each other a Shalom Aleichem or a good Shabbos. And the battle, as I said, was not petty sibling rivalry. They were warring over an ideology that would shape the very future of our people. And yet, the Torah bemoans the fact that they lost the capacity to even say hello, good morning, good Shabbos. Bionison Eibschitz and his Teferis Yonason gives a different shot. He says, the words translated literally read, they could not speak him to peace. Lo yochlu dabro l'shalom. They could not speak him to peace. It's like the way an Israeli would translate the Pasuk. What does that mean? So Bionison Eibschitz says that when we disagree with people, we tend to withdraw from them. We tend to stop speaking to them. Why? We see them as the other. They're different. They're apart from us. And as our communication breaks down, the divider, the wall goes up, and it's stronger and it's stronger. And you can't resolve conflict, and you can't coexist, and you can't find common ground if lo shalom, if Yosef and his brothers had been talking, if they could pass each other and at least say who won the heat game last night, Shalom Aleichem, what's going on? If they were at least talking, it could have opened the doors of communication to say, you know, when you tattle on us to dad, this is how it makes us feel. You know, when you exclude me, because I had a different mother than you, this is how it makes me feel. But because lo yachlu dabro lishalom, says Rabbi Yonason because they withdrew and they saw the other as another, not even capable of talking at all, that precluded their ability to have even the lowest level relationship, but one that could have resolved, resolved things. It's, this is a challenge that continues to plague us. And I'll share with you that I'll share with you that, you know, this past Shabbos, we had an amazing, amazing guest, Rabbi Ephraim Waxman, is a Rosh Hashiva and a Rav in Muncie. And he spoke in shul, there was a Friday night tish, the Malava Malka, Motzei Shabbos was out of this world. The walls in the other room are still reverberating from the singing and dancing that went deep into the night. He was amazingly inspiring. And he's a Hasid Shiyid, he wears a strimal. And I had a conversation that, that disturbs me to my core. Rabbi, how do you bring in a right winger? How do you bring in somebody? How do you this? How do you this? How do you this? How do you this? I said, we're reading about Yosef and Sinaschinam. He's a fellow Jew. He didn't come here and criticize us. We're not criticizing him. His speeches were messages of love and gratitude and happiness. He communicated unity. We have differences with those on the left. We have differences with those on the right. Religiously, politically, we have differences. Are we only able dabro shalom? Can we only welcome to our community or our Shabbos table or say shalom aleichem or connect with somebody who is exactly like us? You're a little to the left of me, you're out. You're a little to the right of me, you're out. You have to be me. And other than that, liochlu dabro shalom. I'm not interested in being your friend. I'm not interested in hearing from you. I'm not interested in talking to you. Bona shalom. This is the state of affairs. This is why Mashiach's not here. We read these parshios and we go to shiurim and we learn about it and we say, oh, sin is chinom, horrible, terrible. We need to correct it. 
Oh, are you going to hear that speaker? That Haredi? You going to hear the speaker? That left-wing liberal? I don't understand. It's not academic. Either we buy into Avas Yisrael and we want to repair that damage and we want to see the best and we want to see that which we have in common. I spoke before Musaf, before the Rav spoke, before he came in the room, frankly, to try to bevorn that reaction before it even happened. And I talked about how Yaakov, what defined Yaakov's life is a sense of Achai, my brothers. He comes to the well, these hooligans are at the well, he says, Achai, hey brothers, what's going on? He calls Lot his brother, he calls his sons his brother, he calls the soldiers of Esav his brother. Yaakov calls everyone brother, brother. Ach, the root, ayin chest, like to be me'ache, is to mend. A brother, you mend, you create a bond, you create a connection. Rav David Miller, one of my Rebbeim from Israel, points out. So this is the hallmark, the character of Yaakov. That word ach, by the way, is the root. The word acher, another. Someone can be another if you focus on the difference. But what's inside the acher? Ach, they're also your brother. See what you have in common. Which, in most cases, within the Orthodox community, you have infinitely more in common with those on the right and left than those that which divides you. There's nuanced differences, sometimes very significant differences. But look at the ach within acher. Look at the ach within echad to become one. I didn't mention it on Shabbos, but perhaps, Rav Miller says, that's what Shimon and Levi correct when the Torah continues by then telling us how Dina is abducted and what do they do? They go rescue. And how does the Torah describe Shimon and Levi? They are achei Dina. They function as brothers. When Yaakov gets damaged, injured by the Saro Shalesav, why was he alone? How did he get hurt? Because he was levado. There was no achtas, there was no ach, there was no camaraderie, there was no companionship. He was all by himself. And that's why he was injured. Shimon and Levi, correct for the abandonment of their father by being there for their sister. The Torah therefore calls achei dina. They act like achim. And this answers another question. We'll end with this of the Chassam Sofer. The Chassam Sofer wonders. Chassam Sofer, it's on Parsha's Vayichi, not on our Parsha. Chassam Sofer wonders. We said earlier, Yosef is about to give in. He's tempted the seduction of the wife of Potiphar. And what kicks in at that moment? What does he see? The image of his father. Ask Chassam Sofer, what happened to the image of Yaakov when the brothers are ready to kill Yosef. Why didn't you poop? Yaakov's face should pop on the screen. Why didn't they see Yaakov? Why didn't they feel his influence, hear his voice, when they're ready to kill their brother, when they're ready to sell him into slavery? Nechsam Sofer gives one answer, but I want to suggest a different one. There's a lot of Yetzirahs we face. And even the Yetzirah that Yosef had to overcome with the wife of Potiphar, the Musti Yukno Shalaviv can help. But you know, there's a Yetzahara so strong, so powerful, so potent, that it clouds judgment that even the Musti Yukno, even the image of a father, can't help. And that is the Yetzahara of hate. Of hate. It says, Vayashkim Avram Babukar Vayachavushas Chamaro, Amar Shimon Bar Yochai, Avam Mikalkelas is Ashura, Vesina Mikalkelas is Ashura. The two forces 
that can penetrate, overwhelm anything are love. People do foolish things for love. They do crazy things for love. Someone in love, you can't talk sense into. They do extraordinary things for love. And people who are filled with hate, it clouds judgment. And it leads to poor decision making. And it doesn't make one open to influence of others. And perhaps that's why the Demusta Yukno did not kick in when they're ready to sell their brother, kill their brother. Because Sina Mikakelis is Ashura. It's the power and the power of hatred. The Meshachochma writes in Vayikra, Meir Simcha of Dvinsk, that the, every challenge we have today, every contemporary conflict we suffer from today, in Israel, in America, the left, the middle, the right, religious, political, that we can't hear a Hasidic Shayyid with a Strymel who has a beautiful message of love because he's a little different than we are. That every conflict today is a remnant of the early act of sibling conflict that continues to plague us and continues to haunt us and we still continue to suffer its consequence. And so I plead with you and I give us all a bracha that we learn the lesson of Yaakov, of Yosef and his brothers. Lo yachlu dablo shalom. Someone's a little different. Davka say shalom aleichem. Davka go over and give a greeting. Davka befriend. Davka connect. Yosef's coat had many colors. Jewish people are made up of a diversity of colors. They don't know how to fit into your exact you. There's many, many colors. And we have to become part of one coat. If we're going to experience Geula, have a great week. I saw one before.